Welcome to Term Talk, a Federal Judicial Center video podcast. Each term, we discuss the Supreme Court cases most important to federal judges. Joining me today, Professor Susanna Sherry, the Herman O. Lowenstein Chair in Law at Vanderbilt University Law School, and Professor Evan Lee, Professor of Law at UC Hastings Law School. Thank you both for joining us today to discuss the Supreme Court's rulings on standing. We're gonna look at three cases decided this term. It seems like the only thing that's certain here is that there's uncertainty. So Susanna, the court decided these three cases with lengthy discussions on standing. Uzabunum versus Perchevsky, California versus Texas, and TransUnion versus Ramirez in that order. So let's start with California versus Texas, perhaps the most awaited decision this term It's the third time that the court was asked to rule on the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, specifically the provision referred to as the individual mandate. Tell us what happened in this case. Well, there's a little background first. Under the Affordable Care Act, which was enacted in 2010, individuals were required to buy insurance coverage or pay a penalty. That's the individual mandate. Uh, Then in 2012, in National Federation of Independent Businesses versus Sebelius, the court held that the individual mandate was not within Congress's Commerce Clause power, but the court upheld it anyway because it was a valid exercise of Congress's taxing clause power. Then in 2017, Congress set the penalty at zero dollars. So the provision was unenforceable. And in California v. Texas, our case, the plaintiffs challenged the individual mandate again. They argued that because there was no longer a penalty, the provision isn't a tax anymore, and therefore it's beyond any of Congress's powers. Um, And they also argue that because the individual mandate isn't severable from the rest of the act, the whole Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional. So there were two different sets of plaintiffs. There were individuals who claimed that they were harmed by the continuing requirement to buy insurance. And there were states who were asserting monetary harm as well from the requirements of the act that they had to distribute information to their citizenry and then they also had to report compliance to the IRS. So the Supreme Court granted cert in a seven to two opinion written by Justice Breyer, the court held that none of the plaintiffs have standing and therefore they never got to the merits. There was no standing for the individuals, according to the court, because they didn't suffer any harm. There was no penalty. There there was no uh, harm traceable to the government action. The states didn't have standing because they didn't provide evidence that their harm, that is the cost of more enrollments or the cost of reporting, that wasn't traceable to the individual mandate. That wasn't traceable to the provision that was being uh, that was being uh, challenged. Uh, and so those, the requirements that harmed the states came from other provisions of the ACA, not the challenged individual mandate. Did the dissenters also focus on, on standing? On what bases did they disagree with the majority and did they ever reach the merits? Uh, they did reach the merits. So uh, they didn't uh, talk just about Uh, standing alone. Uh, Justice Alito was joined in dissent by Justice Gorsuch. And although they conceded that the uh, individual plaintiff's standing was questionable, they said that the state plaintiffs undoubtedly had standing. They said that the state plaintiffs clearly suffered injuries, including 
additional costs of compliance that were obviously traceable to the ACA and to the federal government. They accused the majority of distorting the uh, fairly traceable test of the Article Three standing doctrine, saying that if you look at the precedents, injuries merely need to be traced to the conduct of the defendant, not to the specific act of the defendant that was alleged in the complaint. And now here is the crux really of their argument. The plaintiffs alleged the individual mandate to be unconstitutional. If that provision is truly inseverable from the employer mandate and from the adult children provision, then the plaintiff's injuries have to be fairly traceable to these latter provisions as well as to the individual mandate. In their footnote nine, the dissenters explicitly invite the state plaintiffs to file a new complaint that would satisfy the majority's standing requirements, given that a dismissal for want of subject matter jurisdiction is non-prejudicial. So the takeaways are? Well, uh, this could well be the last challenge to the ACA, but again, just uh, Justice Alito's footnote nine could spark a new state lawsuit. And if that happens, the Supreme Court will presumably get another chance to address what Justice Thomas refers to as this standing by inseverability argument. Evan, let's turn now to TransUnion versus Ramirez. This case reaffirms the injury in fact requirement of Article Three, but it leaves an individual's right to sue for statutory harms unsettled. Will you walk us through this case? Sure. Uh, Ramirez represented a class of plaintiffs uh, suing TransUnion, which is one of the big three credit bureaus, for violating the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Um, when a car dealer ran Ramirez's credit, TransUnion reported that his name appeared on a list of terrorists, drug traffickers, and serious criminals that is kept by the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Asset Control. Uh, and Ramirez sued, uh, alleging that TransUnion did the following things. Number one, failed to act reasonably to ensure the accuracy of credit information that gets sent to businesses. Uh, in this case, uh, TransUnion used a methodology that uh, resulted in a lot of false positives. Uh, number two, that they failed to disclose to the consumer all information in their file as is required by the statute. And number three, failed to provide the consumer with all uh, of his or her statutory rights, again, as is required by the statute. The problem here was that some of the class members had this falsehood reported to potential creditors and some didn't. So everybody in the class did have a credit report erroneously listing them on the terrorist list. But for some of those class members, that error never went beyond uh, the four walls of the TransUnion company, at least during the time that was specified in the litigation. So the issue in this case um, is, um, is not whether Ramirez and other class members who had their false reports sent out to businesses have suffered concrete injury. In fact, the court says clearly they do. They do have concrete injury, in fact. The issue is what about the other class members who did not have their reports sent out? And by a five to four decision with Justice Kavanaugh writing for the majority, the court held 
uh, no, those other class members had not suffered concrete injury, in fact, even though they had stated a good cause of action under the Federal Credit Reporting Act. So, Susanna, how did the court get there to this well, slide? The court focused on uh, jurisprudence, standing jurisprudence from the 1960s and 1970s, and concluded that for standing, you have to have a concrete injury in fact, uh, typically physical or monetary damages, or at least under common law defamation, uh, reputational damage, and only that will support standing. And the majority found that there was no similar injury here. So Susanna, what do you think of the takeaways from this case? Well, the main takeaway is, is the bottom line, that Congress can create the cause of action, but that doesn't necessarily give standing. So going forward, lower courts are going to need to determine whether the plaintiffs are alleging a concrete injury, even if they're claiming a violation of a personal right established by Congress, they'll still have to show a concrete injury. Let's move on to our last case, Usabunum versus Burchetsky. So Susanna, tell us what happened in this case. Um, well, one of the plaintiffs uh, wanted to uh, share his religious views with his fellow students, uh, and it was uh, in a public place on campus, and he was talking to them and trying to give them religious literature, uh, and the campus police stopped him. And uh, they told him, or when he asked university officials, the university officials told him uh, that he was only allowed to do that sort of thing in one of two designated places, uh, and only if he got a permit. Well, he complied with those requirements, but he was stopped again because he was told that the policy prohibited speech that, quote, disturbs the peace and or comfort of persons. So he, along with another student who's claiming his, who claimed his speech was chilled, uh, they sued for nominal damages and injunctive relief to get rid of the policy. During the course of the litigation, the university on its own got rid of the policy and then, of course, requested that the district court dismiss because the issue was now moot. The district court agreed, saying that nominal damages alone can't keep a, a case alive because they can't support standing, and the 11th Circuit affirmed. So the court, the Supreme Court, faced the question, are nominal damages enough uh, to, to redress past and completed constitutional violations uh, in, in uh, such to defeat uh, mootness and then support standing. And Thomas, Justice Thomas writing for an eight to one court said, yes. And then how did the court get to yes? And, and what did the concurrence and the uh, dissent add to this analysis? Justice Thomas uh, writing for the court looks to 300 years of British and American case law to determine that nominal damages have been considered enough to establish the redressability of the plaintiff's injury and therefore to support standing um, or to channel Shakespeare, uh, though nominal damages be small, they are concrete. Um, Chief Justice Roberts was alone in dissent with no redress available and no continuing harms, he says, this decision essentially licenses the court the power to issue advisory opinions, which is a practice that has unanimously been rejected since the administration of George Washington. He did say that the saving grace, uh, if there is one in this decision, may be that a defendant can now agree just to pay those nominal damages and then get the case dismissed for mootness, thereby avoiding the adjudication of the merits. 
uh, which is a question left open by uh, Campbell Edwald Company versus Gomez in 2016. The bottom line, the court determined that nominal damages can defeat mootness and support continued standing in a suit for past completed violations of individual rights, whether or not they accompany a claim for compensatory damages. I think these cases are especially interesting when they're considered as a group um, because the court is sorting out these standing issues one at a time. They're ordering off the menu a la carte, as it were. There's And there's no clear trend. They're not ex uh, trending toward expanding standing, but they're not trending toward contracting it either. And finally, given the rather odd lineups of the justices in the various cases, the results seem completely unconnected to either politics or ideology. Evan, anything else? I do think that the lower courts are going to have to answer the question of what happens if a defendant offers to pay nominal damages but won't admit wrongdoing. I mean, does that really moot the case? I mean, after all, what's meaningful to the plaintiffs is the admission of liability, not the nominal damages. So I think more is going to have to be said on that. Stay tuned. Okay, I'd like to thank you both for being with us, and we look forward to hearing your thoughts on other Supreme Court decisions again soon. Thank you both. This podcast was paid for at U.S. taxpayer expense.